play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, actor and comedian Lauren Weedman. Lauren played Doris on the HBO show Looking. She's had roles on Curb Your Enthusiasm, New Girl, and Arrested Development. She was a Daily Show correspondent. She's written and starred in 11 one-woman shows. And perhaps my favorite credit of all, she hosts The Moth in Santa Monica, a storytelling event. Oh, God, I love The Moth. It's so good. It's so good. I want to go to Lauren's event. And Lauren and I had this kind of explosion of a conversation. It went all over the place. And while I was having this conversation with Lauren, it felt super fun and super witty, but it is a little bit kooky. So I hope you guys will enjoy it as much as we enjoyed being in it. Lauren has always had a complicated relationship with food. So she pretty much never eats the dish that she chose as her last meal. Like, out of fear of, of what? Like, of gaining weight? Like, am I truly at this age? I'm 50 years old, and I'm a, a grown-ass woman who's like, well, I would have this amazing meal that sounds incredible, but I don't want to feel fat tomorrow. Like, that's an awful way to live when you know you you know could be dead by Thursday. But Lauren loves pad thai, which, by the way, I have to make a note. I've always called it pad thai, Um most of the people I interviewed for this episode called it pod thai. I don't know what to call it. I went on Google and I did, how do you pronounce this? And it was sometimes pad thai and sometimes pod thai. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, I interviewed a woman from Thailand who said pod thai, so maybe that's the right way. I don't know what to do. This is like me lecturing people about hummus. <laughs> You know, because they call it hummus, and I'm like, I don't know how to do this. So anyway, um, you're going to hear me saying it both ways throughout the episode. So deal with it. I also don't know if it's Padmalakshmi or Padmalakshmi. Same thing. I hear people saying it both ways. So we're going to get through this together. Uh, if you know the correct pr- pronunciation for Pad Pod Thai and Padma Padma, please let me know. Pad Thai is arguably the most popular Thai dish in America. But how does it fit into the culinary landscape of Thailand? I chat with Pancheri Kawampumchat, PK for short, and her husband Wiley Frank, owners of Little Uncle, which is one of the best Thai restaurants in Seattle. So most Thai restaurants in the States have the exact same menus. You know the menu, it's the same noodles, the same curries, the same stir fries, but Little Uncle celebrates food from different parts of Thailand, and they serve a very Thai style of Pad Thai, a food that doesn't have quite the same popularity as it does here not easily found in Thailand. You have to know what street and you know what neighborhood. Every neighborhood would have it. You just don't know where they're at. And I chat with Carrie Brunson, who left her career as a professional ballerina to pursue a career in food. Carrie now co-owns Juice Box Cafe and an ice cream shop called Frankie and Joe's in Seattle. A lot of dancers spend all of their time thinking about dance in the evening, etc. I didn't think about dance. I thought about food. All of that coming up But first, my interview with Lauren Weedman. Okay, I don't even know where to start, but I love these notes that I got here. Um, Okay, I think a good opening is, you know, to talk about your relationship with your mother. It's just kind of a... Oh, yeah. (laughs) You lay lay down on the couch. So you were adopted. Yeah. And your name, I love this, your name on your birth certificate is Tammy Lisa. 
you know, I always say birth certificate, but again, I'm so full of lies and that they trip out of my mouth so quickly. I was told by my birth mother, by Diane, and I know my birth parents. I met them when I was like 20. I was told that when I was born that they, this like eight-day time period where I wasn't bought yet, they were allowed to put a name on a birth certificate. And my birth mother chose the name. I think she chose uh, Lisa. And then she called her boyfriend or whatever, the guy she knew from the back of the car. Um, she, uh, <laughs> and he got to give a name. He chose Tammy. And so when she told me that, which was fairly recently, I was like, oh, my God, it could have been Tammy Lisa. Like, I'm this far away. And at the time, she told me it felt so appropriate that I could have been Tammy Lisa. My dentist just told me about my overbite. He was like, if you don't get adult braces, your profound overjet is going to overtake you. And I was like, dang, like, Tammy Lisa should be here. <laughs> like, everything felt so, I don't know, being divorced for the second time and smoking into my eggs. You know, not smoking, but ashing into my eggs. Oh, okay. Me with a cigarette. Your felt ovary like that. eggs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, or okay. my. <laughs> oh, I don't know why. That's the first thing I thought of. <laughs> that I was, I was smoking that... a cigarette and putting it into my ovaries. <laughs> I was thinking like, I don't know what I. I don't know what I was thinking. No, I get you old. You're like, oh, everything's going. Well. I'm just Tammy Lisa. My ovary eggs are all dried up, and I'm smoking. That's even better. You just made that. Well, that's what I was thinking. Richer. Was like, oh, if I wanted to have another child, I just right. have my eggs on the table, and then right. I'm just ashing into them. Times a ticking. Right. That's oh, much classier. Chicken really. eggs. Yeah, exactly. As if I'm like sitting at the table yeah. with my cigarettes going like, guess I could have been Tammy Lisa. I might as well have been Tammy Lisa. But I'm telling you, the eggs make it sound a bit classier. I think so, too. Thank you. Yeah, that. that's what I am. I'm a purveyor of class. Yes. That's how most like. people would describe me. Okay, so we just learned about Tammy Lisa's mama, Lauren's birth mother. But now our therapy session continues as we talk about the mother that she grew up with. Your adoptive mom, though, was a ballet dancer? Yes, yes. Her lunch was just like licking a rice cracker. Like she was very, very into how she was always under 90 pounds. And wow. it's like, and she was just constantly so very careful with food. And, and I was like gaining weight. As soon as I hit puberty, I was hiding little Debbie snack cakes in my closet. Nice. Right. So I could, you know, help fill in after the rice cake lunch. Odd to have a mother that was so teeny and so food obsessed, not in a real soulful way, in a more ballet way. Yeah. So how did that influence you in the way that you ate? I, I would hoard food. Like, I would get really – well, I would do this thing with the Little Debbie Snack Cakes. That's how I remember it, like, starting, where I was always starving watching her eat. If we would have, like, a sandwich, God forbid, if she had, like, a hamburger from Steak and Shake, or Steak Burger, to be more specific, she would be like, I'm just going to eat half because I couldn't possibly eat anymore. My stomach wouldn't be able to handle it. And it was always, like, for my sake or something, like, I, I can't eat, like, a, a person of your size. Or, or She wouldn't say that so directly, but I'd always make a – display about what a tiny little bird appetite she had. As she was just saying that to me, I feel like I was starving. You know, as if I was like, I want more. I want more. I, I was always um, hungry. Um, and so I would sneak food. Or she would come in in the evening sometimes, like where the family's like all watching TV. And she's like, well, I had some ice cream for dessert for everybody, but somebody ate it after school. And I'd be over there with like ice cream dried all over my front. <laughs> Who like, was it, Mom? Yeah, that person should be banned from the freezer. <laughs> like I was, so I definitely was more food- obsessed for a while and there was on a ton of different diets too like I was on like Weight Watchers and Nutrisystem and things where there was all these different I, I had to go to a hypnotist at one point and they wow. and the hypnotist like would take me through these visualizations of of like walking on the beach and a beautiful woman in a swimsuit comes up to you and offers you and that beautiful woman is like your goal weight whatever you've said your is your she's a beautiful woman of 130 pounds and offers you a donut and then she throws up on the donut what do you still want yeah they did this like a version thing of like offering you the one thing I know that, you... that didn't work because when I Googled you, there was a picture of you eating a donut in Portland. So that one didn't work. <laughs> no, it made me want it more. I was, I mean, not with the throw up, obviously, yeah. <laughs> because that was like the one food that I was so like, like, what's your favorite food? I was like, I love a donut. But that didn't work. I, I gained weight going to the hypnotist also because it was oh, wow. across the street from Wendy's. 
which was also a problem. I was in the Midwest. When Lauren eventually moved to Los Angeles, she found herself in another tedious food environment. L.A. eating to me is like, could I just put an IV in and take a, like this vitamin and be done with eating? Like it's so soulless. Well, you lived in Seattle for a long time and then you moved to L.A. So was that kind of like coming home in a way like, oh, I'm going back to the way my mother ate. I'm living amongst people who are always on a diet. Yeah, it's really I moved from Seattle to Amsterdam. No, I did not. Oh, my God. All of a sudden. Here I go with the lies again. I know. I'm just like I lived on an airplane for nine years. I think Um, (laughs) I I went to Seattle, New York, and then I went from. Well, that is New Amsterdam. Oh, that's so true. So, you know, yeah, that's okay. probably why you thought that, because you <laughs> like right. to call things by their old timey names. Yeah, I do yeah. do that. You're right. Thank you for helping me. Like, You're welcome. Like, um, well, in L.A., actually, when I first got there, when I first visited, I remember people ordering this one pizza that just came with a crust and then a salad on top. And everyone was so excited because it was so great. They were just like, this is so, I don't even miss it. And I remember being like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm being... I'm being punked or something. Like, everyone's acting like, this is so delicious. Or these fat-free muffins that everyone was eating. This is way back when, like, fat-free was a big thing. Like, late 80s, early 90s? Kind of, 90s, exactly. Okay. I first visited. I didn't move there. I was visiting there. And I thought every food I ate had nothing to it. It literally was like, I can't believe how good it is to, like, chew on this piece of cardboard. And everyone's yeah. like, it really tastes amazingly like food. And now that I'm there, actually, I'm thinking about coming to talk to you. I was thinking about how, I kept thinking about how soulless my eating and food has become in LA. Like it really doesn't it's have. So sad. It is sad. Oh, there's yeah. so much sadness. Believe no, because it's all about just trying to get like, try to live long and live well and be perky and, and yeah. like be thin and be feeling healthy, but not really the the whole thing of like sitting down at the table or ever eating pasta. God forbid, you know. Like you never eat. I never. I don't eat foods like that anymore. Like the foods that I really love. And if you ask somebody what their favorite meal is or the last meal they'd want, I feel like everyone would be like sushi. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because the Los Angeles food scene has gotten way, way, way better. And now, yeah. I mean, some people think that it's the best food scene in the country, even better than New York. After Jonathan Gold, who just died. Oh, right? so sad. And that yes. was really sad. Yeah, I loved him. Me too. Me too. And I, um, my ex-husband was way into finding food places. He was completely in the, the know about how amazing L.A. was food yeah. was. But he was also a non-drinker at the time, so he chose all the restaurants that didn't have alcohol, which was always, sometimes it would be some of the better restaurants. That's totally Jonathan Gold style because you go out to the San Gabriel Valley and right. you go to all these hole-in-the-wall places yep. from all around the world and they don't have a liquor license, right. but you can eat 30,000 dumplings. Yes, yeah. yes. That's, yeah, and that's what my ex, Jeff, would do. And I loved it, except for me, I was always like, there's not a cocktail at all. Okay. It was hard. Um, but I've been craving to get back to eating and living with a bit more depth because yeah. I have not been doing that because of divorce stuff and just sort of being like... And aging, having this, oh, this is so, it's getting more and more like, oh, but it's true because it's, it really We're is going to die, you know. Yeah. I just read that article in Glamour Magazine too. It was such it was a shock. Good. It was written by the ghost of Patrick Swayze. So we know it's true. <laughs> that would be, how could, how did you say that so quickly? How did you have that right there? And that's amazing. I don't by the know. Ghost of, you must have read something else that the ghost of Patrick Swayze has written. Well, I celebrate his entire catalog. He doesn't just write for Glamour. You know, New Yorker, Dirty Dancing that? Monthly, <laughs> all the good stuff. That would be so incredible. Like I heard, Anyway, um, he, um, I, all of a sudden I'm like, what else would he write? Now, there's a law in the world of podcasting. If you summon the ghost of Patrick Swayze, you have to take a commercial break. So that's what we're going to do. We are big law abiders around here. But when we come back, Lauren will share her last meal, a food she loves so, so much, but hasn't eaten in a very, very long time. Oh, and I accidentally insult the owners of one of Seattle's best Thai restaurants by comparing their food to Burger King. We'll be right back.
just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash meal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. We're back. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. It's called Your Last Meal. Did you know that? Uh, That way you get episodes as soon as they drop like my episode with Kyle McLaughlin, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Kyle played Agent Dale Cooper on Twin Peaks. And after his line, this is a damn fine cup of coffee, became a cult classic, Kyle rarely pays for a cup. People do like to bring, they do like to buy me coffee. That is very true, if they, if they recognize that I'm there. So that's coming up in two weeks. But right now, we're going to hear what Lauren Weedman's last meal would be. First thing I thought of when I read your question was um, Pud Thai. And I don't remember the first time I had it, but I do remember that it was in Seattle. There's so many Thai restaurants here. I was assuming it was in yeah, Seattle. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I wonder why is there so many Thai restaurants here? I don't know. Hmm. Hmm, this is going to just, I don't know, goodbye sleep for the next week. I'll just be obsessed. But that's the thing with this podcast is I will look into that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I life is a process. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's awesome. Because I am actually of the age where I care about that kind of stuff, where I can keep listening before I'd be like, who cares? Just right. like pass the wine. <laughs> um I lived in Amsterdam before I lived in Seattle, and in Amsterdam there's a lot of Indonesian food, and I love that. And it was, I think, it was just having uh, exotic spice coming from Indianapolis, where at the time growing up in Indiana, there was no the ethnic food was Mexican. I don't believe it was all that you know authentic. It was very you know Taco Belly, let's say. And then to be little Indonesian food, just to have any kind of intense spice to me was euphoric, like it was a high, like that yeah. high of spicy food uh, that I'd never experienced. Um, I had it here, and I I believe there was a place that was like a it was a walk up kind of deal. It was downtown, and it was just I just thought it was the most amazing food I'd ever had, and it was so comforting because it was also sugary. Because I'm a bit of a I've still got the sugar thing, which everybody's always like, well, you know how bad sugar is, and I'm like, I I know I know. Come at me, I'm not scared of you. <laughs> um, and it was I just thought it was the perfect comforting, amazing, delicious food. Um, and I still think it's the most, and I never have it anymore. I think that's oh. the thing too that I'm like, why? 
and I'll think about having it like before a show. It's where I need to sort of carb load before I'm performing. Yeah. And even then, I'll be like, well, that could be really heavy. And that was such a bummer to me. Like when I was thinking about this answer, I'm like, are you telling me? Like out of fear of of what? Like of gaining weight? Yeah. Like am I truly at this age? I'm 50 years old and I'm a, a grown ass woman who's like, well, I would have this amazing meal that sounds incredible, but I don't want to feel fat tomorrow. Like that's an awful way to live when you know you you know could be dead by Thursday. I think too with the, the pud thai thing and the food thing is that because I I had weight, I used to be overweight, like 50, 60 pounds overweight. So I had this weight problem, but it was never, a, I thought it was about food, but it wasn't about food. It was one of those things about my relationship with food. And, and I had such a bad relationship with food because of all the dieting growing up. And then the diets were never real food. Like I was on this weird fake food stuff. This Nutrisystem had some weird, did a lot of that kind of eating. And so my body was so off. And then I got to places where people actually ate and they were so freaked out by how I ate. So I had yet to experience being an adult who could enjoy a meal. Lauren Weedman wants to enjoy food again. She wants to make eating a soulful experience. And for her last meal, she wants pad thai. Lauren and I both wondered why there are so many Thai restaurants in Seattle. If you don't live here, let me tell you, they are everywhere. And according to a 2014 Seattle Times article, which is the most recent statistic that I could find, Seattleites ate more Thai food than pizza. We ate more Thai food than Chinese food or sushi or Italian. In fact, the only cuisine more popular than Thai in Seattle is Mexican food. According to the Washington Hospitality Association, there are 110 Thai restaurants in Seattle, which is about four times more than Boston and three times more than Denver. But it is not because there are a lot of Thai immigrants here, which is what I thought. There are only about 1,200 Thai people living in Seattle, which means there is roughly one Thai restaurant for every 11 Thai people living here. I did research, I asked around, and I still have no idea why there are so many Thai restaurants, which is frustrating because I want to give you answers. That's what I do. I get questions, I give you answers, but you know what? Not all questions lead to answers. Like, what what happens after we die? We don't know that. Are Ernie and Bert gay? Sesame Street says, stop asking. We don't want to talk about that. I've, I've been wondering if my cat thinks I'm her mother or her friend. I will never know the answer to that question. I want to know if my cat thinks about me when I'm gone. Hi, welcome to Cat Talk, a podcast about me and my cat. But the point is, who cares why there are so many Thai restaurants in Seattle? We should all feel hashtag blessed and hashtag grateful that we have so much access to so much Pad Thai. Oh, hi. Hi, guys. It's me again, Rachel Bell. But not the Rachel Bell you were just listening to. No, no. This is future Rachel Bell. I recorded that last segment in every other part of this podcast about a week ago. And the day before this episode was set to go live, I freaking figured out why there are so many Thai restaurants, not just here in Seattle, but in the United States as a whole. So remember five seconds ago when I said, who cares why there are so many Thai restaurants in Seattle? I care. I care deeply. But I'm going to make you wait a little bit to get the answer. We're putting together a mini bonus episode that will air next week. The story is so interesting, it deserves to be explored properly. And not only will you learn why there are a ton of Thai restaurants in America, despite the fact that there are only a relatively small number of immigrants, but you're going to learn why most of the menus at American Thai restaurants are pretty much exactly the same. So keep an eye out for next week's bonus episode. All right, future Rachel Bell is going to go back to the future, in my DeLorean, of course, and past Rachel Bell... We'll take it from here. Today, I'm going to talk Pad Thai with PK and Wiley Frank, the owners of Little Uncle, which is a Thai restaurant in Seattle. 
Their small 12-item menu features dishes from all over Thailand. Our restaurant is based on what we would like to eat ourselves, so creating the recipes to feed the masses that way. So it's not like regional. It's more of what we would want to eat and keep eating and craving. PK moved to the States from Thailand when she was nine years old. And about 10 years ago when the recession hit, they decided to spend a year in Thailand and do a deep dive into the food there. Wiley was a chef before they left, and when they came back, they opened Little Uncle. And part of what sets them apart from other restaurants is that they use so many fresh ingredients. They crack open coconuts for their cow soy and painstakingly squeeze the juice from tamarind pods. I heard a rumor a few years ago that a lot of Thai places use ketchup instead of tamarind in Pad Thai. Is that true? I have no idea. Well, a lot of restaurants who make Pad Thai sauce, the owners do that in their secret room. It's like a top secret sauce. I have no idea. We are not top secret with our sauce because it's labor intensive. I'd rather pass it on for someone to squeeze the tamarind pot. So talk about how you make your pad thai. Uh, why do you want to take that? PK talked about the gentleman in her hometown that makes pad thai that we kind of base our recipe off of, or at least inspired by it a little bit. It's very simple. I can just name all the ingredients right now. It's freshly squeezed tamarind, palm sugar, vinegar, salt, and that's about it. Of course, there's other ingredients that go into it as you're making it, but that's the sauce. It is on a little simpler side, I'd say, but it's the ingredients that kind of make it special, I think. And then the other additional things that we put in it while we're cooking it, shallots, preserved turnip. It's kind of these little salty bits um, that people don't necessarily notice it when they're eating it, but it's there. Um, We get some nice uh, organic eggs from Kameno Island and tofu that's made down the street from our restaurant at Northwest Tofu Incorporated up on uh, Jackson. And some sprouts, garlic chives. What else? That's about it. One of the fun things about ordering at your restaurant is getting those little packets of the peanuts and the palm sugar. Is that what it is, palm sugar? We use organic sugar and roasted peanuts and peppers. Traditionally, if you had pad thai in Thailand or in restaurants, they would have all that on the side so you can add as much as, or as little as you like. So if I was going to have the pad thai, I will slowly add the peppers, the sugar, and the lime. And then I'm like, oh, I need it hotter. And by the time they end my plate, I added so much peppers that I'm sweating. And every bite just becomes a richer bite. There is something satisfying about doing a little bit of it yourself. It's like you don't know how to make it at home, so you want someone else to do it for you. But then you get to have it exactly how you want it. Right. Kind of like a Burger King. I've always thought that Little Uncle was synonymous with Burger King. Have it your way. (laughs) That's a push. That's a push. (laughs) And unlike your neighborhood tie joint that asks if you want chicken, pork, beef, or shrimp in whatever dish you ordered, Little Uncle's Pad Thai only comes with tofu. Traditionally, Pad Thai doesn't have meat. If anything, it's shrimp. And I think people should have less choices sometimes. And just to serve something that we actually would eat ourselves and enjoy ourselves rather than you know, accommodating everyone's request, even though we think it might not be the best choice. Most people think tofu is gross, but since we're using Northwest tofu, they make it fresh and we get it fresh. It's delicious. It's soft. Um, It soaks up the flavors of the tamarind sauce really well. The whole dish itself has its own complication with the simplicity of it all. Like, take it as it is. So you're not Burger King, is what you're saying, after all. Sadly, sorry. We work work really hard not to be like Burger King. (laughs) We say no a lot to people. You do? Yeah, yeah, we do. On the menu under Pad Thai, there's a little paragraph that says, We do not add chicken to our Pad Thai. We do not have a star system. We give you peanuts, extremely hot roasted chilies, and organic sugar on the side to season your Pad Thai. Why sugar? 
The sugar balances the sourness of the noodles, balances the hot chilies, and adds a crunchy texture. Oh, and my thing is taste our food before asking for hot sauce because uh, I get upset (laughs) because people ask for sauces before they even taste the flavors that are are intended to uh, make the dish the way it is. And a lot of people look at some of our food and and they see that it's not reddish in color. So they think, oh, it must not be spicy. I'm going to ask for something to put on there. More often than not, I mean, I think we have a reputation of our food being pretty hot sometimes. So, yeah, that, that happens a lot. People taste the food, take two bites, and then they'll come back to me, and they, more often than not, they, they're happy with what they got. Right. When you order Little Uncle's Pad Thai to go, it will come wrapped up in compostable butcher paper. Pad Thai in Thailand is to grab and go, and they do have boxes, but it's easier to have butcher paper, and you just stack the butcher paper up, put the noodles on, and wrap it in a certain way that they can be carried and take home easily. And then you go home, you just open the packet and eat off the table or put it on a plate, but you don't have to wash the plate. So it's the same way, the way we wrap our pad thai is our butcher paper, and it's coated with wax on one side so it won't seep through. Pad thai is the national dish of Thailand, but PK and Wiley say it is not on every menu in Thailand like it is in the U.S., I mean, when you're in the tourist areas, it's kind of easy to find. Every yeah. restaurant will have it. But off the beaten path, it's a little difficult to find. You, it's easier to spot other restaurants that serve dishes like cow mangai, which is chicken and rice, or good deal like noodle, no different noodle places. Yeah. Is it something that people make at home? It's a lot easier to go buy it from someone that's already making that dish. The better restaurants are the one that serves one or two dishes. Instead of, you know, what we get here, you open a menu, it's 100 items. And they did them very well. That's why they're still in business. Okay, raise your hand if you want pad thai now. Uh, Yeah, we both have our hands in the air. So I may have mentioned this in the past that after editing these episodes, Erin, you and I both have the problem of like, oh man, Maria Shriver made me want a hamburger. Like I have to go out and get a hamburger right now. Um, And so my new producer, Laura, was cutting up this interview and I look over and she has left the building, come back, and is just eating pad thai at her desk. Like, Like she needed it right then. So... Sorry, you guys may need to take a break right now to get some Pad Thai, but make sure and come back because after this little break, I chat with former ballerina, current ice cream shop owner, Carrie Brunson. At the beginning of this episode, we learned that Lauren Weedman was raised by a former ballerina who ate like a bird and strive to stay below 90 pounds. And I feel like that's a pretty accurate representation of the stereotypical ballerina. But I want to tell a different story. This is the story of a professional ballerina who loved food so much, she quit ballet and opened a restaurant and an ice cream shop. So about 10 years ago, which is probably about the time that PK and Wiley were roaming Thailand looking for new recipes, everybody had a food blog. It was basically the law. It's just like now it's the law that everybody has to have a podcast. I had a food blog with a really stupid name, and I looked and I Googled online, and it still exists. Um, it's it's so dumb. I don't even know what my inspiration was, but it's eat, 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 enjoy at Blogspot. <laughs> it doesn't even feel like me. Was everything else taken? 
But amongst the food blogger community, at least in Seattle, there was a buzz about this woman named Carrie Brunson. And I figured out that she was a dancer with the Pacific Northwest Ballet who, gasp, also had a food blog. And just like the stereotype I was talking about earlier, people were like, how could someone who dances professionally for a living, who does ballet, actually have interest in food so much to have a food blog like the rest of us? In 2009, there was an article in the Seattle PI titled, Ballerina Brunson doesn't give up good food for her art. And the picture on the front page was Carrie Brunson sitting inside a giant stock pot with ballet slippers and a tutu sticking out. So after talking to Lauren, I thought about Carrie. I hadn't thought about her in a decade. I actually have never met her before. Uh, And I Googled her name and I was super excited to learn and also shocked that she is the owner of one of my favorite ice cream shops. Carrie owns Frankie and Joe's, which is a plant-based ice cream shop with the absolute best cones that just so happen to be gluten-free, and she owns Juicebox Cafe. And I think her transition from ballet to owning restaurants is super interesting, and I wanted to tell her story. Carrie grew up ballet dancing, and when she was about 14 years old, she got really serious about it, and she moved to New York City to study it more earnestly. In 2002, she moved to Seattle to join the company at Pacific Northwest Ballet. I got a tiny little injury that could still have me be standing on my legs, but I couldn't dance. And Francia Russell, who is a mentor to me, and she was the original uh, person that hired me, she suggested that I go and potentially work in a kitchen because she would go to my blog and she'd print out recipes. And so that summer, her son, Ethan Stoll, opened up a restaurant called Anchovies and Olives. And she suggested that I potentially go and work with him a couple times a week. There was a lot of a lot of energy that summer, a lot of excitement, and uh, I sort of fell in love with having something that I had created for myself and feeling like it was something I wanted to pursue. Ethan Stoll is one of Seattle's most well-known restaurateurs. He has 13 restaurants. He's a James Beard Award nominee. And his parents just so happen to be the founding artistic directors of the Pacific Northwest Ballet. So after her stage, Carrie went back to dance. But her heart just wasn't fully in it. That night, I didn't think about dance. I thought about food and I thought about what I was going to make next and how I was going to write about it and how I was going to photograph it. It was like this little love affair that I had with this other thing. She was on her way to becoming a soloist, but all she could think about was chopping vegetables for free in the restaurant. So at just 26 years old, Carrie decided to retire from ballet, leaving behind a successful career as a ballet dancer with a good salary and benefits for the minimum wage world of restaurants where she started as a stage, which means she worked for free, and then worked long, late hours, often in a kitchen full of men with little patience for showing her the ropes. It was a really hard decision. I felt like I was going to leave at the top for me at that time. Could I have continued to go on? Absolutely, I was planning to. I just thought to myself, you know, I have had a really beautiful career, and um, I could keep going, or I could stop now and I have so much energy for this new thing that I'm going to just take a risk and give it a try. I went and I worked as a hostess at Anchovies and Olives. And then I worked at a pizza spot called Delancey making salads and started my little budding food career. Pretty soon, Carrie realized that restaurant life was rough. Lots of very late nights, lots of drinking. And so she pivoted. Her first solo venture was selling fresh pressed juice with a friend at the farmer's market. And that led to opening Juicebox Cafe in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. Seven years later, it is full-blown restaurant <laughs> that mostly serves food and juice as well. But the majority of our sales are now food. We have a big brunch program. And we focus on 
plant-based food, but also have chicken and eggs and cheese and all of that within moderation. Um, but it's sort of a celebration of vegetables and fruits and pickles and ferments. And, you know, the goal of Juice Box is that when you walk in the door and you eat our food, you walk out feeling better than you did when you walked in. So It's the Boy Scout way. Yeah. And the yeah. Girl Scout way. And the Girl Scout yeah. way. Yeah. And then a few years ago, she met Autumn Martin a fantastic pastry chef and chocolatier in Seattle who owns my favorite dessert cafe, Hotcakes. And together, they open Frankie and Joe's. It's a plant-based ice cream shop that uses coconut milk and house-made cashew milk as the base. It is so good. Have you been there, Aaron Mason? No, it sounds delicious, though. It's really good. My favorite flavor is their chocolate tahini super cookie that has chunks of this tahini chocolate chunk cookie mixed in. I live down the street from one, and it's probably, like, the place I eat ice cream the most. Yeah. And so whenever I'm telling people, I feel like I always have to add this little addendum because people are like, oh, it's gluten-free and plant-based. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You wouldn't even notice the difference. Yeah. If, if you didn't know, it's not like you're going in and you're, like, compromising on Absolutely ice cream. Not. It's so good. When they wait in line and they're going for the first time, people just have this assumption it's not going to be as good. So we have to work even harder to win them over. And so far, I think it's working. So that is Carrie now. Let's go back to the ballerina years. I think there yeah. are a lot of stereotypes. I don't know how true they are of the way that ballerinas eat, yeah. um, maybe not eating as sure. much. What was what was it like in general, especially when you were away from home, like yeah. the culture? In general, most of us are athletes and we have an extremely rigorous schedule. So although people believe that you're not eating, that's just not true. Dancers eat a lot. So there isn't a lot of eating disorders. This isn't like the 70s and the 80s. There are, but... It's not very common. There is disordered eating, which I believe is we're all type A, a little bit OCD. For me, I ate the same thing for pretty much breakfast and lunch and before my shows for a decade. What did you eat? Oh, I, I could go through the whole thing, but it would sound a little crazy. I'd rather not do that. Okay. Well, you said you ate the same thing. Do you mean like the same dish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for like weeks on end? For almost a decade. Yeah. You know, I'm going to eat these enchiladas from Trader Joe's. Before my show, because I knew that they sustained me, that it was warm, I knew how long it take to prepare, and I knew that it wasn't going to hurt my stomach, because you don't want to be have gas or bloat. So you wouldn't want to introduce something that's brand new into your body. If I'm surprised it was enchiladas. I wouldn't imagine that would well, be like a you know, pre-show food. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think, I mean, I also, Trader Joe's uh, had a lot of things that felt like I was getting a complete set of protein and carbohydrates and fat and salt, you know, just I wasn't eating lots of vegetables because that roughage would hurt your stomach, right? Oh, so you're yeah. wanting things with like complexity to them. So you said that there weren't like a lot of eating disorders and all of that, but like what was the general relationship to food? Like when you were living away from home and yeah. you're eating in the cafeteria, I mean, was food something that people talked about a lot or was of it course. more of a fueling? Yeah. I mean, especially women, it is one of the most challenging things to sort of go through puberty while you're wearing leotard and tights. It was really hard for me. I, I was such a scrawny, thin little child with a very high metabolism. I didn't become a woman until much later, much later than all my friends and peers because of my weight and how active I was and just my genetics. Um, and so that process of going from five foot four to five foot nine and going from flat chested to having curves is challenging. And then, you know, the relationship of your teachers that are trying to help you be successful and then what they know, you know, makes a successful dancer is this certain physique and look. So when you're in that process of sort of your body changing, 
they, I don't feel like, at least for me, that the relationship that they created with my body was good for my psyche. Um, Because we were already all comparing ourselves anyway. You're you're standing in front of a mirror for your entire life. So you're just constantly self-criticizing and looking at other people and being like, why are their legs longer? Or why are my knees bent backwards? Or, you know, why is their foot more pointed than mine? Things you can't necessarily change, but the thing that you can change is how big or small you are. And so now that I'm in a leadership position, and obviously it's very different, but I'm in a leadership role and I am, it's, it's my responsibility to mentor the people that are around me. I don't know. I, I feel like there was just a better way that it all could have been done. Lauren Weedman does want to change her relationship with food. And our conversation really got her thinking deeper about the way she eats. I'm not saying this in any way like this podcast is going to change your life. But do you think after thinking about your last meal and feeling kind of badly that you haven't eaten your favorite dish in so long, yes. do you think you will eat it soon? No, that's what I'm – not to make it, – it has changed. Let's, it's true, though. It has. Like, And I didn't know because I thought when I was driving here, I'm like – because I do comedy stuff. that I'm like, oh, that'll be a drag if I come in. I'm like, I just want to thank you. Because um, I really have lost my relationship with food. But it's true. And I kept thinking about the word soulful stuff. I was like, there's no soul in where I live. God bless them, whatever. People live mm-hmm. their lives in Santa Monica. But it's kind of a plasticky place, a bit a bit of a, a surface place. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of, mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I've been eating. That's how I've been sort of experiencing things of like, it all looks great. And everyone's like, well, congratulations. I saw you on TV for two seconds. And I'm like, I'm telling you, the air that's coming out of me is boo. And then the food-wise, too. It's like there's no... Yay, I've maintained my weight, but who gives a shit if you're alone and boring? So, yes, this has been really, it was inspiring to think, like, for God's sakes, lady, eat the food you want. How eat sad. It. Yeah. Oh, God, I do want to get some pad thai when I'm here. I though. want you to get some so bad. Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll yeah. happen. Any okay. spicy food, I'm a big fan of. I think I like a, a high of, of something that changes you when you're, <laughs> that's like a drug addict, but it's like something where the food experience is like, oh, it changes you where you are. And I do sort of crave the, the spicy. The slap a bit that you get from that is always super nice. I should learn how to make that. I don't know. I'm really busy. Probably not. (laughs) That was a good meeting. (laughs) Lauren Weedman, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. You've changed my life. Oh, good. You're welcome. (laughs) You didn't even have to walk on coals. But I would. And that was Lauren Weedman's last meal. What would Tammy Lisa's last meal be? That's a good question because I feel like I do eat like Tammy Lisa once in a while where I'm like, oh, God, this is so Tammy Lisa right now. Um, I think it would be... um, like, <laughs> it would be those little mini powdered sugar donuts. Those, like, and even, and I'm not a, I don't drink milk. This is just because it's a little raw to me. But um, that with, like, dipped in some milk or something, just, I would have, Coffee just eat, like, a, oh, that's even better. Yeah. Just a roll of those, I think, um, would be amazing. <laughs> and then Tammy Lisa would take all the powder that fell on the table, and she'd, like, yeah. put it into lines and snort it. Totally. Yum, yeah. yum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, a full experience. Sounds... Oh, that's so sweet. You did make it a full experience. I yeah, did, and then her yeah. tube top flips up. Yeah, totally. <laughs> You can find her online at laurenweedman.com. She's written a couple of books and you can buy them there. And you can track her down to see her hosting them off. Thanks to PK and Frank from Little Uncle. I'm here to tell you that their cow soy is so good. It's my favorite cow soy I've had in the United States. Go eat at the restaurant next time you're in Seattle. 
And just a quick thank you to the Washington Hospitality Association for helping me track down how many Thai restaurants are in Seattle. Thanks to Carrie Brunson, owner of Juicebox and Frankie and Joe's. Frankie and Joe's has two permanent locations and a summer pop-up in Seattle. And they have all of these funky flavors like salty caramel ash, which is this dark gray color that will probably make your parents go, why did you bring me here? And then you just say, have a sample. You're going to like it. And then they're like, you're right. I was being weird. But seriously, why is the ice cream great? It's because it's made of charcoal. Uh, another flavor, gingered golden milk with fresh turmeric and ginger. And for the more tame, brown sugar vanilla and mint brownie. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and recorded with Aaron Mason. Theme music by Prom Queen. Follow us on Instagram. I don't know why I say us. It's really just me. Your Last Meal Podcast. And give us some stars or a little review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. And thanks to Carrie Brunson. Yes. When you order Little Uncle's Pat Thai... I just keep saying, it's like, little uncle, little uncle, little uncle, little, little uncle. So this is the story all about how my life got flipped, flipped upside down. Okay. <laughs> what is the lyrics there? Uh, this is the story of about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. Flip, turn. Okay, not flip, flooped. All right. <laughs>